Welcome to Opening Presence, the podcast about creative self-realization. My name is Aaron Robinson. Thank you so much for joining me. In today's episode, I sit down with Amber Boydston. She's the founder of Spirited Justice, a nonprofit organization founded on the principles of justice, abolition, equity, and mindfulness. In this conversation, we discuss how curiosity is a driving force towards truth and not accepting the lies that we've been conditioned to accept. We also speak on how black liberation depends on winning the war against colonialism and white supremacy. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, without further ado, welcome to Opening Presence. Welcome to Opening Presence. <laughs> My name is Aaron Robinson. Thank you so much for joining us today for another installment of You Gonna Learn Something Today. <laughs> Actually, this will be the first. But today, I am joined by the wonderful, legendary Amber Boydston. Oh my goodness, thank you. <laughs> I feel welcomed. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So we've followed each other on the gram for quite some time now and something that I realized early on was that you are a leader you lead with compassion you lead with your heart all I hear is truth whenever you speak (laughs) but for the listeners that don't know anything about you who are you and where are you from and what are you here to do I want to say first, I've so appreciated following you. It's been really refreshing seeing somebody else who's so dedicated to a practice, a foundational practice around mindfulness and breath work and meditation, because it is really one of, I think, the root practices of our liberation for black people and African people across the diaspora. So thank you for that. Um, I am, I'm Amber and I'm 38. I'm light skinned, black abolitionist, uh, Ethiopian father and Irish mother. Um, and I come from a background of educators, a family who were educators in many different ways and were really vocal and um, progressive in the actions and really their lived praxis around what um, creating a new world looked like. And so um, I, I say that, and also, you know, I have an Irish side of the family that is also, you know, deeply colonized and steeped in colonialization. And so those are, um, rooted in me as well. And so areas that I'm always conscious of, um, I have two children, I have a 12 year old and a three year old, and I am consistently humbled learning and, uh, growing with, you know, young people who are full people. Um, with their own lights. And I am here really, I think I I feel both like as a light skin, mixed race, black person, like a bridge, and also in the education work that I do, which is largely transformative and restorative justice and, and mindfulness work. um, I I feel like I'm straddling the line between two worlds uh, that are um, really trying to remember how to wake up and coexist. Mm beautiful (laughs) 
Yeah. And on this journey, it feels like, and we've had like a pretty deep conversation prior to this recording this, um, I guess we're going to just go straight in there, but it feels like there's one side that is doing all the work and, uh, the other is in a comfortable slumber while (laughs) a war is being waged. Mm -hmm. Right. And that war to me so much is internal. It's that, um, that refuting the level of cognitive dissonance when it comes to remembering that, you know, at least right here where you and I are on, you know, Turtle Island on indigenous land, um, that it is a colonized space that has been, you know, taken from indigenous people and, um, and built by African and black people and brown people. And, um, so I think often, you know, white people have a falsehood that this is a white country and, and they forget that. And so I think that's what I hear you speaking to a little bit is, um, not remembering that this is really a brown and black country and this is really a brown and black world. And as people of the global minority, um, it's important to remember that white people are the minority. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember um, that in order to be in solidarity for African and black liberation, which is the liberation of all people, it's really honoring the people who are consistently doing the most work, which are our richly melanated black and brown people, our undocumented community members, um, our refugee and immigrant um, communities uh, are, you know, um, across the, you know, diaspora of, of I would say, you know, the spectrum of gender, which is, is you know, um, also a falsehood in its own right. You know, these are, there are groups of people that have been deeply committed to building a world where we can create community, and those people are black and brown people. Mm-hmm. How important, and when did you start, like, learning about us black people and uh, I guess like the history and, and how does that educate you in leading us into a better world? Cause mm-hmm. I feel like personally, like I grew up in San Diego, like I grew up in like a white city. I was one of maybe like 10, 11 black kids in my high school who had a graduating class of like 800 or something when I graduated. So There was a couple of us, but I was the one black kid on the baseball team. I was everybody's one black friend at the same damn time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How could I be one per like 12 people's one black friend, but I was Mm me um, Mm -hmm. navigating. Like Jesus. (laughs) Exactly. My hair looks like Jesus right Mm now. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I've been in like very close proximity to whiteness. Like I grew up in a gated community. like to have my first black friends were at like a neighboring high school when I was like a junior, I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to go to the other school across town to, to make some friends and mm-hmm. went to their like football games and like did crump dancing in in the Wendy's parking lot. And, yeah. and I was horrible by the way, um, to anybody who has heard the stories of me <laughs> crump dancing, but I was just trying to f- like fit in and find an identity because I knew in my own experience, like 
the friends that I had had that were on my baseball team, it's like whenever I have like an idea or an intuition or we should do this, like I would automatically get overruled. Like, like it was like a, it was like a reflex. It was like, Oh, whatever I say, I was taught that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Like I remember even just a few years ago, like when I was like 24, I was in like this, like my oldest friend group. Um, but like the Kaepernick stuff came up and like I was standing on an island, like saying like, yo, this is what it's about. Da 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 da. And I was called ignorant for, mm-hmm. for just speaking the truth mm-hmm. that was so fucking obvious to me. But mm-hmm. to that point, I was just like, no, you're wrong. Whatever you believe is wrong. But when did you like start learning about blackness and, and what it meant to your family's life, what it means to your life? And, mm-hmm. and I, think of that question in two different ways although I want to say that those experiences you had are really relatable and also deeply impactful right and when we talk about trauma I think what often is missed is like the epigenetic impacts and the cellular impacts right and so just that the practices that you embody right now and every day around mindfulness and meditation is really important because as we consider adverse childhood experiences and how they thrust our bodies into fight or flight or fawn or freeze mode or other F modes, <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 you have to have an active practice to combat that, mm-hmm. you know, and also not to pass that down. And, you know, what we know about energy is it's always living. And so to change that energy and that vibration is, is a sacred practice. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I hope that you and I are able to create worlds where children don't have to go through those things. No, we are, you know? Yeah. It's but like, you're like already really, pass, you're passing really. that to your children. It's mm-hmm. like, but you know, in a larger way. So I just, I want to say that first, I think though about your question, I think about it in two ways, because when I train, I often say, when did you know you were black? When did you know you weren't white? And those are two mm. different questions, mm-hmm. right? So when I think about the work that I do, I come from you know, on, on the black side of my family, family that was uh, rooted in Oregon and doing work with black community around holding energy um, was uh, somewhat religious based, although that was, you know, a practice and, um, and also had, you know, and have ancestors who were creating all black schools um, and other, other states. Um, and Having a white Catholic young mother, Irish mother, um, my mom had me when she was 19. She was uh, number seven out of eight children. I'd gone to an all-Catholic school, um, hid her pregnancy the whole time until she went into labor. Mm. And, um, and, you know, thought about giving me up for adoption for three days. So there was like a three day period of not, not having a lot of human interaction. So when I think about when I was like socialized or, you know, racialized in this world, there was those beginning moments on a cellular level where I was really um, reminded of being othered, right? Othered as a light skinned person born in 83 and, and, you know, a young, young state, you know, when you think about Oregon, um, and our black exclusionary practices and laws um, that have been on the books since the 1800s. Um, we are very different in a different state than any other state um, because we actively 
chose that we didn't want black people here, not even enslaved, you know? So it was, uh, it was this, I think, pivotal time um, in the world and in where I was placed locally, you know, um, in the Pacific Northwest and in the family that I was a part of, you know? And so um, that was something that I always felt on a cellular level. Um, my family moved, uh, my mom moved me to uh, the East Coast and I lived on a 40 acre farm and I went to a school where I was the only black child um, I was taken out of Irvington, which at the time Irvington here in Northeast Portland was a predominantly black and brown school. Um, and I was moved to an all white school and uh, the 45 minute bus ride, uh, I was called the N word the entire time, most of the time. And so I remember being five and six, um, and being told that I was too black to be played with and, and kids either thought I was dirty or they just would call me the N-word. So that was, you know, programming from their families. Mm -hmm. As we do know that children are choosing who they hang out with by skin tone by the time they're three. And so that is socialized behavior from the adults in their lives. And so um, at a very early age, I was learning how to navigate this racialized world with other children across the racial diaspora that were learning how to navigate their place in hierarchical systems in this world. And... Um, and so I uh, had to be an advocate for myself um, in really, really large ways for my safety. Um, so that started really young. And when I was 13, I started working with Clackamas County Family Court Services, uh, teaching in schools about conflict resolution, um, holding mediations with other families and teens in conflict, and then also um, working with the school, the prison pipeline to abolish uh, both the prison industrial complex, which is a continuation of enslavement for black people specifically. And um, also the, you know, it's, it's really the like birth to, to it's the breath to birth to industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So it started very early and then, uh, you know, like quite young in my teens as well. Yeah. So you said, like you began to advocate for yourself. Was there like a switch that happened based off of like the experiences that you had to that point instead of just like onboarding and like it took uh, so freaking long for me to like advocate for myself, like in a real way where it felt empowered and not just like a like a stress response or just sure. like, or like a I'm gonna get you back. But it's not coming from an empowered yeah. place. Like, yeah, like as you're speaking, I'm like reliving like a lot of like the stuff that I experienced that was like subtle, like subtle insidious shit. Like mm -hmm. I remember going on sixth grade camp and it's like when like the whole grade like went to Camp Cuyamaca. It was like this camp that was like X amount of miles away from where we went to school and we were there for like, I don't know, like four days or something like that and we're at this camp and I remember being on a hike and there was uh this like hike leader there's an old man he's probably like 50 years old or something and we're walking through like the woods and stuff and we pull over to like sit down and he pulls out like a ziploc bag and gives everybody cookies so he's going down the line giving everybody cookies and he gave me like the smallest cookie and it was all crumpled up and stuff and he handed it to me and I was like oh like what's this and he told me like be happy with what you get and at that point, like, I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I was being ungrateful. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, he's right. Like, I need to be, like, grateful to have this. And everyone else is smacking down their big old giant cookie. 
and I'm like, <laughs> but it's like that moment passes by and I just go on like living thinking that's normal. Like fifth grade, I remember sure. the spelling bee and it was Miss Adams class. And uh, I was like one of the first people to start. And my word was alcohol. And I, I, I was like, oh yeah, I got this. And like, I, I said, AC, da, da, da. which so, is then, white terror to start with. It, and then it's like, wait, I missed the L. I got the word wrong. And then like uh, another kid that was like the kind of like the golden hair, the golden boy, uh, Spencer Hood, like he spelled his word wrong. And the teacher was like, Spencer didn't mean to miss that wrong. Did he class? And everyone's just like, no, he didn't mean to miss that, that word. So he got another chance and got to stay in the spelling bee. But then like years later, I'm looking back, I'm like, why did she give me alcohol? Like, why did she give me the word alcohol? We know why. I'm just like, that shit is so fucking insidious. And I find myself in reliving from a, like a detached, emotionally detached sure, perspective. Sure. But I'm just like, that's where compassion for self comes in, where it's like, yo, Aaron, like you had no say so in that space. And I, w- I wasn't grown up to have like that empowered, like, like awareness to to kind of like combat these type of offenses because my dad was completely disconnected and didn't teach me and my brother anything he just sat there did his thing we're supposed to listen because we're supposed to but giving no explanations about how to move through this world and then my mother like just survival it's like she's operating in in a horrible world as well Mm -hmm. um but looking back i'm just like okay like all right, I understand now, but I wish in those moments that I had like the capacity to like fight for myself and to set people straight. But um, I think it operates as compassion for self now. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't always think that it's safe. It's not always safe to advocate for yourself, even now sure. at 38 in spaces. Mm-hmm. I might chill a little bit, just watch. You know, or receive. It's not worth it. I would say East Coast uh, directness and racism, I I appreciate much more. Mm -hmm. I appreciate knowing where I stand with people. Um, Portland is very much uh, um, uh, stab you in the back, Mm -hmm. you know, and like the falsehood of niceties. It's very, very odd. Um, Yeah. What does that come from? Like, this has been on my mind for like, a while now and now that i kind of just hit that boiling point because it's just like yo it's like white people in portland white people in general but white people in portland are their own breed of i don't know if it's narcissism Mm -hmm. whatever the fuck it is like Mm -hmm. y'all are confused like the virtue signaling i can't even like contextualize it because it's like this moving target Mm. It's like this disingenuous attempt at social justice. It's like, like I was saying before, it's like a fucking hobby project. It's like, let me identify so much with people suffering in this faux compassion. But then when it comes down to actually doing something, they'll be like, oh, I like bird watching and I'm going to go over there and do this yeah, thing. Yeah. And it's just like, wait, where's like any sort of follow through or accountability in this selective amnesia? when it comes down to really executing something, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, uh, what? And then just completely fumble the ball. Um, mm-hmm. 
I've expressed this like a million times in the perfect way, but this was probably like my worst time, like the worst expression <laughs> that I've to encapsulate like this faux liberalism, like underbelly of democratic politics. I'm like, yo, y'all are fucking the devil. Right. I mean, I think you said it in a relatable way. Um, I'm like, yes. ah, how do I make sense of something that just doesn't? Sure. Well, I want to answer your question prior, which is like, how do I do it? And I just want to pay homage to black women because black women prior than me have have uh, championed the work of liberation. And so that's how I'm able to champion the work of liberation. Um, and I haven't always done it well. And I've often played the house Negro. And to what you're speaking to is because we live in Oregon. I think people don't understand um, our state specifically, which is a Klan state um, in so many ways. And um, so much of our policy is born out of anti-blackness and um and it is in insidious and i and it is very much i would say i'm someone who doesn't use the word microaggressions because after 400 plus years 600 years nothing is micro mm -hmm. and so people have resided here and have moved here white people have resided here and moved here specifically because they want to create a white utopia that has been written down that has been practiced and that is part of our um, our policies and it is many times written over in our books. It is part of our redlining, it's part of our gentrification. Um, and so it is white people with a large level of cognitive dissonance again, right? Forgetting that they're part of humanity. Forgetting that, and I will say, as someone with a whole white mother who grew inside a whole white person, white people forgetting that they are recessive genes, forgetting that as a recessive gene, um, you're very much like a virus. And much like a virus, your only job is to remain alive and supreme. Mm. And so it's important for white people to look through um, our history for other white abolitionists. There are lots of examples of other white abolitionists who have been able to um, center black people, richly melanated black people, to um, use their access, their power, their privilege to help black people with whatever form of liberation and basic foundation of needs that they can. There's, there's few of them but they're out there. So I think white people are caught up in, in um, a little bit of their own created uh, psychosis fairyland. Yeah. And I, f I see it so much around me, like when I'm just like sure. walking the streets and it's just like you see someone like a block and a half away from you. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's this internal like space that happens where it's like you're mentally engaging. It's like, all right, like is this person going to like be a regular person and like acknowledge my <laughs> presence and and I'm not the type of person that just like walks straight ahead and just like doesn't say anything or mm -hmm. doesn't like give like a nod mm -hmm. or like at least like acknowledge somebody that walks by um but far too often in this city there's just like this co like this coordinated or uncoordinated just like like let's just not even acknowledge and it and it's and it's all it's all an internal process it's like whatever that person's going through whatever type of dissonance that they have from the present moment like mm -hmm. is not my issue but i feel like it's just 
overwhelming in this city where it's just like yo like y'all like go on a meeting to discuss like your mm-hmm. idiosyncrasies or something because mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. i see the same playbook over mm-hmm. and over and over again mm-hmm. like everybody let's go lay out on the bridge and the cameras are on and and let's have this performative moment and then as soon as like something has to be done about it like where is everybody like y'all sure. just showed up for the camera op sure. and fucking dipped. I'm like, like after the George Floyd pl- protest, it's like y'all elected the same fucking mayor. Sure. The same mayor, the same one that had fucking yeah. shooting citizens and shit. You're sure. Like, Tevis, our sixth, sixth generation logger, <laughs> white family clan fascist. Yeah. Mayor. Yes. Yeah. Who, who gassed people and they had, you know, miscarried. Yeah. their children because of the chemical warfare that was yeah, in but, the gas. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like the same, but white people the same, want that. The they want to eviscerate us. Showed, the same people sure. who showed up to sure. the fucking protest sure. behind yeah. closed doors. Yes. Fucking voted for the person yes. that gassed everybody. Yes. Yes. So, so I don't see like that's diabolical. Like, sure. It's like, who do you, that's like, a level of psychosis. That's really wild. Right? Like you're really unhealthy mentally. To yeah. do that kind of thing as a white person. But it's like, why is it up to us to make sense of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to think that. I don't think anymore. Like, white people white people need to deal with their own falsehood of white supremacy. And I say it's a falsehood of white supremacy because there's nothing supreme about them. And they only really know how to do a few things. Kill people? Kill, rape, and steal. You know? That's it. That that's the colonizing way. And if white people are not actively dismantling those systems, they're complacent in it, which means they're benefiting from it. Yeah. I mean, I have so many white people I know, white women, because I want to make sure I separate here. I really do believe in the white matriarchy, which birthed the patriarchy. And I think it's important to note that every racist, systemically oppressive practice and system that has been put in place has been created and upheld by white women Mm -hmm. that's important to note right like i know so many white women who say to me like oh i've gentrified the area oh i have privilege oh i have access um none of those white women have offered me their home none of those in in neighborhoods that i cannot afford even though i was born here None of those white people have offered me their savings accounts for their children, nor any other black or brown or indigenous person. It doesn't even have to be about me. Like none of those white people actually care enough about any black person's liberation at all. And again, because they're a recessive gene. Mm. Like they don't even understand their place in this world. Like I know my place in this world as an original person. Mm-hmm. As a black person, a descendant from African people, as an African person, I know my place in this world. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end. Mm -hmm. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Like, that is so deeply rooted in the essence of who we are. Mm -hmm. But, like, what are white people? So when you say, like, why, like, it is, it is it's just, like, grotesque and disgusting, and it's, like, the most in-your-face display of whiteness when they do that. When they, when they put themselves out there like they care and they actually don't. Yeah. And what they do is they get us to coon and they get us to dance and they get us to like them and they get us to retweet them and they get in our heads and they, and they break apart the movement. They create chaos in between our own people. Yeah. 
I have so many white women in my DM. The only people who correct me, I want to be really clear. My organization is Spirited Justice. I'm a black owned business. I have been for many years. The only people who are in my DMs are white women correcting me. Yes. I, I, that is verifiable. I have the receipts because white people need receipts for everything. Every day there's a white person in my DM correcting me. Mm-hmm. I've had the same instance, like, knowing that I have to be more outspoken on issues that I care about, regardless of the repercussions of who's going to disown me or quote unquote cancel me these days. It's like, yo, like, like I've shut this truth that lives in my heart down for so long. It's like, I don't care what's on the other side. Like when I see truth, I'm, I'm marching towards it. I don't care who's in the way. Um, but sharing things about just like, like COVID policies and stuff like that, that I've found to be true. Like, similarly, it's like my inbox is, is flood with white women saying like, oh, you could have phrased it differently. And I'm just like, no. Like, you could dismantle you- the oppressive systems that keep our people hanging on trees. Yeah. What are we talking about right now? This is, this is like, I don't know. Yeah. And, and honestly, in my own experience, like, I ha- in the real world, I have more fear of white women than white men. Of course. Because there's, there's more respect from white men then there are like literally it's like when when there's like a with with men it's like there's this general like like line of like oh like this person could kill me or mm-hmm. this person can can mm-hmm. harm me mm-hmm. but it's like <laughs> with white women there's no like there's no on my end there's no like oh i'm gonna do something about anything and they see that and they know that so they can kind of have free reign whether they want to call the cops on me whether they want to hit me whether they want to slander me and say something that happened that didn't happen like it's like white women are way more of a weapon Mm -hmm. and i see it as more Mm -hmm. dangerous than a white man in any day in a bathrobe it's like it's not even close it's like like they're more outspoken like they will like they create say the more, systems. more more passive aggressive shit. They'll say the thing. Like white dudes, they don't say shit to me. But they like, listen to their white wives. Yes, they do. <laughs> and they do what their but white women want. They do. They carry out the orders from <laughs> mm-hmm. the white matriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. Yeah. But it's, it's weird. But gr- especially like growing up in like a system and like the more we become educated about like how ingrained they are, like you keep bringing back like the like epigenetic like makeup mm-hmm. and it's like like we pass down these like mm-hmm. fear responses from our parents and these these like societal norms and we carry those on until we address them and, and like do yeah. the inner yeah. work like to address those things. Um, so speaking about that, like when did your mindfulness practice start and when did you start kind of like uncovering some of the more dormant energies and concepts of self? Um, and how did you go about like rewriting those programs? Mm-hmm. I think I'm still figuring it out and I think I always will be. I think of earth as an earth school, you know? So I think I'm probably always going to be a lifelong learner and discovering the ways in which um, colonialization is is working through me, you know, and the ways in which, uh, you know, the practices of African liberation are really alive in me. So there's that. Um, I've uh, always had a practice of meditation my whole life. Um, I had parents uh, or father that would sit with me Mm. um, and taught me how to just sit and breathe. And um, then I practiced it uh, when I 
was in school and when I worked and I worked at a very young age because I needed to work um, and because I came from a home that um, uh, I didn't have a lot of the foundational supports around like what you're talking about like words for what I was dealing with and feeling so um, I worked with uh, other educators and therapists and lawyers and people through conflict resolution to sort of learn a little bit more and like give verbiage to what I was experiencing right mm -hmm. and so those were I think those practices through my teen years especially doing work in Oregon and in rural areas in Oregon where sometimes I wasn't served in spaces because I was black where um, obviously being othered and many, many anti-black and racist experiences, um, I had to survive. So I think that I have always known um, that I, uh, I've always known two things, that I am I'm very powerful and also that um, I'm, uh, I'm actively being hunted. And so sometimes I've chosen to take the easy route, especially when I was younger, and just uh, use my proximity to whiteness and um, my Eurocentric features. I'd straighten my hair, um, and I would just let shit slide. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't until I realized that no matter what, I just never was going to be good enough. Like my lexicon is broad. I can outspeak, you know, I can do circles around someone at Ivy League schools. Like that's, it's just never, ever, ever good enough. Um, when I wear my hair natural, there's a whole subset of, of white people that won't even look at me or speak to me professionally. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I really understood how actively hunted I was as a person and as a black woman um, that I chose to be even more um, outspoken. And I would say in the last few years, you know, po like post George Floyd, you know, may his name be a revolution. I, I have worked alongside so many other abolitionists and um, educators and activists, and I've learned about colorism in, in such a tangible way that I've seen my privilege and access and being able to speak um, about issues that my more richly melanated comrades could never speak about without being dismissed or shut down or laughed at um, or abused for or killed for. Um, and I've had an incredible amount of backlash. Um, I have a pretty intense, you know, experiences with Proud Boys consistently, um, threats to my family, um, written and verbal. Um, you know, they have uh, eviscerated my vehicle recently. Um, and uh, I've been followed. I was followed every day. I did programming with... Uh, through the numbers, which is a Black-owned radio station. Um, I was doing programming at the Portland Art Museum. I was followed every day by Proud Boys and police officers um, from my home to the Portland Art Museum. So they, there's, uh, there's also like the, I would say what has been helpful is, and what I advocate for as an abolitionist is to um, educate yourself on, um, uh, you know, and read a lot that other Black activists 
and authors and musicians and you know people in movement spaces have written about because um, I understand as a black woman what they will try to do and they being white people is get in my head and divide us from one another Um, and so that as a black person doing this work as a black woman doing this work as a black femme um, that's been something that I'm consistently navigating is like how do I show up when I know I'm actively being um, eviscerated as a people um, and uh, in my own city uh, attacked Mm -hmm. and not safe and uh, like and also how do I live into that like access and privilege of having light skin which is what I ask white people to do every day is to is to dismantle the oppressive systems and to be outspoken and to do what's really challenging and difficult, which is be truthful and honest about the ways in which we aren't coming together as a people. Mm-hmm. And I really believe as a mixed race black person that it will take all of us, you know, to come together. But in my practice, I now just really am, I'm, I'm speaking with and to our people because white people need to speak with and to their people. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I don't think as a whole, they really see us as humans based on their practices, based on what you just said, that there are white people that are willing to do things for a photo op, but not actually willing to give up their daily comforts and their vacations and their excess of money and their houses and their cars and their children's college funds of, of, you know, submerging them in more colonialization over basic black children eating, Mm -hmm. you know, like, White people will do the most to make sure their kids get into universities while black children don't eat. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm just always learning. I'm always learning. Yeah, most definitely. And like through the practice, it's like learning about self and it's like, like, what is the truth? It's like someone will tell you a falsehood. And for the longest time, it's like we've all believed the falsehood about who we are. We were told about who we are and we still are continuing to be told who we are by someone who does not have our best interest at heart. And like when in the absence of books and information or like quality books and information in this pool of all of this misinformation and just like alternative facts and all that kind of stuff, like the only place where you can really truly like without a doubt find truth is like within Mm -hmm. like even in subjects of that you have no like knowledge on it's like you ask yourself like what does this feel like what is like asking ourselves questions and and learning the language of the body to give us the answers that we haven't found out there yet Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's like something moving forward that we all need to like really tap into um, as the airwaves just get cluttered with Mm. purposefully just pumped in the noise it's like at like football Mm -hmm. stadiums there's like the crowd Mm -hmm. but some of the teams like will pump in extra noise to Mm -hmm. to make it seem like that they're getting really loud and it's like a fabrication and it's and if you're not paying attention it's so subtle that you don't realize that it's like you're intentionally being moved off the mark as soon as we get close to uncovering this deep existential or societal truth about the government or about like their involvement in mm. x y and z mm-hmm. they'll pull the rug out and start a war in another place of course and and of every course. single time even like it's just like coupling covid narrative to then it's like all right now we're in ukraine i was like motherfucker have you been to downtown portland 
it's like all the people that I follow, like on Instagram, a lot of white ladies, like they identify and hop to each external trauma as possible. It's like, oh, like here's a link to send money to Ukraine. I'm just like, yo, there's a fucking homeless dude that shits in a fucking bucket at the end of your street. Like make him a sandwich, like something like there's so many issues that we have. Yeah, but that that isn't like you know, photographable, right? No. You can't caption that. No. But you can screenshot and you can send, you can say you did this to, you know, white people and you, which I I really want to be clear when people talk about Ukraine, they need to remember that it wasn't just white officials that were holding black and African people back. It was all of the white people. Yeah. That if Ukrainians would have been in solidarity with African and black lives, every black woman and child would have gotten on that. Mm-hmm. train first and it wouldn't have even been a thing but we have a system that's ingrained in a falsehood of white supremacy mm-hmm. and white people believing that they are i don't i don't know i i don't know special that they're special i don't know they're not special yeah remember when like like just and just how closely like in such close proximity like these societal things happen it's like when like all of like the haitian like mm-hmm. like immigrants came through and they're living under a bridge in like houston and then and they're like getting the, whipped the photo op with the fucking dude on a horse like mm-hmm. grabbing a, mm-hmm. a dude by his shirt and whipping it's him horrific. it's like it's yo horrific. hey people same concept people just like trying to like survive mm-hmm. same concept but it mm-hmm. complete treated completely different and it's like it's all right there and nobody just calls it for what it is and there's no. all this tiptoeing around it and yeah it's it's maddening um well it's disgusting right yeah. like and i think to what you're saying is like every time we get close to as a people to waking up there's a new sickness there's a new war there's a new yeah diversion yeah. right because because the more curious we are, right? Like even if we don't have books and we don't have access, we can be curious people. And Mm -hmm. if we're curious people as a baseline mindset, we will see the spaces where there's oppression Mm -hmm. and where it's thriving and who's supporting it thriving, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I just implore people to remain curious, right? Mm -hmm. And to remain outspoken when you're curious within your safety. Yeah, within your safety. Yeah, I think... The curiosity is like spawned just my creative and like like my ascension essentially it's like oh that's funny that was the name of my first podcast i ever did mm. <laughs> broadcasting my ascension essentially mm-hmm. but just the curiosity of like oh like what else is there like what have i what other lives have i been fed oh like what limitations were i was i like in this hypnosis about and like how do i break through it and what does it feel like to be on the other side of it and and to look back and be like, all right, I'm glad I went through that kind of stuff because there's no other place in the world I'd rather be than right here, right now. Yeah. And having yeah. that mentality moving forward, it's like, mm, what? Like I'm, like, <laughs> if I showed you what I was looking up on YouTube now, like you'd be like, oh, he off the deep end now. But I'm just like, yo, like, I don't, I don't think that we know anything about this universe at all. And mm. there are people who have dedicated their lives to exploring consciousness, uh, the level of consciousness in other types of beings or energies. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure in your meditations, mm-hmm. it's like you feel presence 
in various forms, whether that's your own personal thought forms or another uh, energy will enter the room. I've actually always been able to see. So I've always been able to see, see energy, see energy and, and see people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, and I would say for people listening here, like what? Like it's important to understand how the brain works. Right. And sure. so um, our, our eyes are basically like a lens of a camera. Right. And so there's this just filtering in everything from mm -hmm. all streams, right? In all dimensions. Mm -hmm. And our brains are really slowly processing. Yes. And so unless we, it's sort of like a DVD, unless it's already imprinted on our brain, our brain doesn't usually even pick it up and recognize it as real. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things that are existing in here already are things that our brain wouldn't even recognize sure. so we don't even i mean and i think about when i think about oppression i think about the level of oppression of like white people you know feeding the lie that like white people are superheroes because black and african people are actually magic and i don't say that just like lightly like we actually are magic and we actually can time travel and we actually can Big lift our vibration. We actually can create a whole room of people to feel, to experience and to vibrate, yeah. to release, to climax at, just by holding our energy. We are really, really, really powerful beings. And I heard this person, Darren LeBaron, say the other day, we're just mushrooms having a human experience. And so I mm -hmm. think in that way to sort of like contextualize the idea that as as african and black people across the diaspora we are really like these um healing organisms and like these like living and effable entheogens it's just like really i don't know it's a somatic experience to yeah. be african and black and i know white people listening will never ever get it again the recessive gene is real um, come to our side. Uh, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean make babies with us. That just means like, uh, you know, uh, release your, um, idea of, uh, supremacy, um, and remember humanity as a whole. But I, yeah, we are really, really magic. Yeah. The, like speaking on like the ability to like cultivate energy and to like step into a completely different reality in a short time frame simply by placing attention mm -hmm. and connecting to breath mm -hmm. and, if our consciousness or like our awareness is kind of like a, you know, those, uh, those things that kids have, like where you put like the goggles on and you click the button and it's a different. And it's like, I, f I feel like I do that shit all the time where it's like, all right, what do I want mm -hmm. to like experience now? All right. Mm -hmm. All right. This is this, yes. the, the energetic, uh, palette that I'm embodying in mm. this moment. And there's just all these different modes um of energy embodiment that it's like painting essentially mm. and it's like all right which masterpiece do i want to like paint now and it's and i experience that a lot of the times in conversation like in the things in the areas that i've defined for myself as like the happy making things mm -hmm. like this connection and exploring like one another and our unique experiences within this landscape to arrive at a new place is a part of that process that we're creating in this moment right now that is a completely new experience because mm -hmm. this is like a chemical process mm -hmm. that is happening in real time so it's kind of hard to like 
articulate something that's yeah. not fixed that we're not referring back to as a manuscript to mm. oppress another person or to <laughs> or to to try to have like a, a goal it's like this is free flowing and it's allowed to go anywhere else because we can cultivate it and direct it to where we need it to go but it just so inherently goes that it's mostly towards like love connection knowledge and whatever other magic decides to show up with us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely very much so yeah so what is spirited justice Spirited justice is in my abolition, equity, justice, and mindfulness organization. And um, we focus on African and black liberation across the diaspora. And so we really have a foundation around uh, mindfulness, just really understanding how the brain works and how important it is to um, have access to your highest self, your most aligned self, the part of yourself that you want to show up, whatever words you want to use for that. But the, you know, the part of you that, that really you feel like, yeah, okay, I'm me, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I'm really, really deeply interested in helping young people remember that space early. I like to sort of play with words a little bit and I'm trying to move away from using healing as much because I really do believe that we are whole people at a core level it's almost like we layer, we put on layers. And so how can we take off those layers, like mm-hmm. that unlearning and come back to our wholeness? And so I have like this understanding of um, our frontal lobe, right, which helps us make decisions. And, and what I say is like the frontal lobe is important because it, it helps us in this world navigate these situations in this world. But youth also not having their frontal lobes developed till they're almost 26 is also really dope because then it means that they're able to like most authentically be themselves mm. without the filter of like the socialized world. What is supposed to, how do I think it through? Right. Um, but what that also means is like, it's dangerous because youth are interacting in a world where there are policies and practices and procedures that say, one, youth need to follow and listen first. All youth, not just black youth. Black youth the most, but all youth, right? And then second, um, you're not valued. So you just need to follow. Two, you're not valued. Three, you're replaceable. We could eviscerate you and, and the people will be having sex again and we'll make more of you, mm-hmm. right? There's a, there's a market there. Um, and uh, And... And I, I could keep naming all the reasons. So there's, there's um, a belief system that we have as a society around young people. And um, I'm here to interrupt that narrative. Uh, my organization is here to interrupt that narrative. And um, we're definitely here to support remembering and uh, waking up to the fullness of like who we are and the potentiality around humans. And so when I think about the breath work, I guess to be more concise, I think about like when young people don't have their frontal lobes developed and they're in a society that is trying to just oppress and eviscerate them, how do we help them survive and thrive? Mm -hmm. And part of surviving is learning how to keep yourself in that alignment space that you want to for yourself or for your family values or for that next step, right? So that looks like black and brown children who are in a racist school system learning how to breathe so that when they interact with those 
white counselors during those trips in the outdoors, which is really sacred time, which is really um, important time for all youth and especially black and brown youth, right? Because those spaces have been in so many ways, verbally and non-verbally told to us that they're not our space. And so it's important to interrupt the system and and teach young people how to hold that energy so that when they're in those racist experiences like you were and you're getting the smallest crumpled cookie, you don't lose it, right? Mm -hmm. And you also don't internalize it. So both those things are true, right? And both those experiences are valid if you lose it, if you stuff it, if you both, right? It's not one is better than the other, but one will liken the chance of you waking up to the fullness of who you are and remembering how to navigate this racialized world. And Mm -hmm. so meditation is about, for me, like healing that epigenetic, you know, line of ours, ancestral line. Not all of us come from enslavement as African and black people, but some of our lines do. All of us are living in a colonialized world right? It's not the shark, it's the ocean. So that's important to remember. So I, that, that mindfulness work is, is deep for me and like helping black and brown children both feel good about themselves and also navigate the systems and then get to thriving. Um, practically what my organization looks like is I support in consultations. I do trainings and workshops around, um, equity, uh, justice. I don't usually use DEI. I did that work 20 years ago. I think it's just a catchphrase right now for people. Too many people act like they know what they're doing and they really don't have a praxis around it. I'm around holding space Mm. for transformative justice. A lot of people talk about it and nobody wants to do the dirty work. And when, you know, from experience, when you do the dirty work, you're often called someone who's an abuser sympathizer or a male abuser sympathizer, anti-black yourself or racist so a lot of people don't actually know how to do transformative justice work so that's a lot of also what I do is like mediations Mm -hmm. and holding space for those really really challenging conversations what does it look like when we have intense um, racist experiences in schools Um, what does it look like when we have physical um, you know content warning um, emotional sexual abuse Um, how do we rape um How do we hold space for high level of accountability and a high level of support? Right. Mm -hmm. So um, and that that work is always a learning as a community. Right. There's no one way that we learn how to hold space for one another. It's it's continuing process. Um, And I do boots on the ground work. I do a lot of organizing um, and free education educational events uh for our communities and um work in schools uh doing those trainings and work with educators and teachers and communities and um that's what i do so you're a superhero basically right (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) on behalf of everyone thank you so much for like all the work you've done and like something that you'd mentioned like early in the podcast is like when you mentioned kids and you brought it back but just like that they are whole humans Mm -hmm. already yes like they're developing but like they're not lacking anything Mm -hmm. in that moment Mm -hmm. that's something that i'm coming into more and more of an intimate understanding of Mm. um through experience like gratefully like like i spoke at a school for the first time a couple weeks ago uh northwest academy in downtown portland so i did two back-to-back 
presentations about mindfulness, one with uh, sixth through eighth grade and then ninth through 12th grade. Mm. So two completely different speeches <laughs> and just showing up as my full self and in that moment. And it's like validating like their intuition. Cause it's like, yo, like I know y'all are looking around and yes. y'all, it's just not vibing with you. And it's mm -hmm. like, you're right. Mm -hmm. Like it's exactly what you feel it is. And like we did a guided meditation mm. with all of them and like both times. And it was like the most like enriching experience. Cause I was like, yo, like I'm being the person that I wish I had right now. Absolutely. Like to all these kids who are, who are out here, like, dang, like mommy and daddy are fighting or like they're making me like <laughs> wear a mask to school mm -hmm. <laughs> and the the parents are upholding this masks in school thing. And I don't know, I saw a YouTube video that says that we're not at risk of this thing, but why are we still having to do this? And, and things like that, of that nature. Um, but just to be there... <laughs> I just want to say like it just makes me think of the disconnect globally right because we have like you know Asian countries that are shutting down and we have you know Western countries that are opening up and we just don't have a solidarity across the world and like how to care for people we don't it's just like rule uh, yeah like hierarchical system but, it, but empowering the kids like, yes like just because yes. I've never had anyone to like validate me and say like yo, like, that's a great idea, young man. You should follow that up. Like, no one ever did that. Like, and and not to... That's a fail failure it, as adults. Yeah, that's completely. That's a failure. It's like, I've always been taught to just, like, settle for, like, the, like, the entry-level job. Every educator that had Aaron <laughs> Robinson has... Well, they know, but the has, thing is, like, has they failed, know. Has failed them, just, I want to say, as an educator, because every child needs to feel seen. Yeah, they do. But so, it's just like, it's like, do better. They like the <laughs> opportunity that like adults have. And I'm like looking around, I'm like, yo, like, where are the good parents at? Like, not just the opportunity, the access and the privilege and the power. Yeah. To influence right? the kids' life. Right. Are you kidding yes, me? Yes. At any yes. Point, yes. At any point of the day, yes. you can say, like, hey guys, that's a great idea. That's really cool. And just move along and, your and day. It, and it takes so, two seconds. Right? So here's what seconds. I say for people doing, trying to do, like white people trying to do race work. It's similar to adults doing work with youth, right? Can you be the adult that steps out of your comfort zone to validate that child even if every other adult doesn't? Even if it makes you look odd, even if it makes you look weird, even if it makes you look like you're anti-adult or anti-rule. If it makes you feel uncomfortable. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, if you don't know if it's true. You don't have to know if it's true. They have potential. We know that's true. Mm -hmm. Like collectively as a society, we know it's true. Yeah. Right. So like, can you do that? Similarly, can you step outside your comfort zone when it comes to race related issues and call it out to be that one person that's willing to stand on the side of justice? This city? <laughs> oh my most God. white people know. Oh Absolutely not. No, most white people know. Whoa. But it's like that similar concept, right? Are you willing to be othered by your own peer group for the liberation of this most oppressed group? Yeah. And the liberation of the most oppressed group is young people. Mm -hmm. And we need to validate them so they feel seen. Mm -hmm. Adults need to do the work you and I are doing, which is like that shadow work so that we're not always in every way passing down all that trauma because we do it already just by existing right mm -hmm. yeah yeah we got a lot of we got a lot of work to do but i'm glad that we are like both on like the same team doing the things that are necessary and, and 
facing our own shit first and <laughs> and not passing it on but i'm definitely like hopeful at least like i've found the place where i'm best served and mm. and to actually be participating in a like progressive way like i'm i'm not sitting back and allowing anyone else to speak for me on platforms or or anything it's like recognizing our own power and mm. our own capacity to to create change and each and every person listening to this has their own specific like cadence or tempo to add to this orchestral symphony like mm-hmm. they have their thing and it's like that's what i always look at is like everyone's first thing is like what am i going to contribute to this collective stew or mm-hmm. collective like song mm-hmm. and and i think a lot of us are looking at other people and it's like oh that person's on guitar i want to play guitar i was like well maybe you're on fucking percussion mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like stop looking around you mm-hmm. to try to take on someone else's instrument with because they found their thing it's like you got to find your specific thing mm-hmm. and the only way to do that mm-hmm. is to go inward yes yes yeah which is like such a beautiful and also you know, accessful place, right, that we are in right now. And yeah, I, I just hope that in every way we can get to spaces where black and African and brown people, people of the global majority can remember just how beautiful we are, right? Mm-hmm. And that I think what you're saying is spot on, that it's not about following anybody else's um, path, right? Like we're all pieces of a puzzle. And so instead of being like a second rate version of someone else being like the first rate version of ourselves. That part. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's and, and we're all unique and different. And that's what makes us really, really special. And I think that's what colonialization has taught us. Isn't they try to tell us isn't true. Right. That we should be more alike. And I think the more that we are kind of different, that's what brings us together as a humanity. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Damn, I can have this conversation all day, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our beautiful listeners? I do. I do just want to thank everyone and also say that, you know, when we think about a movement and we think about what does it take to really radicalize one another? What does it take to build community? um, What does it take to really, you know, embody abolition praxis? which is really practicing dreaming that new world, right? Every single day, I think it's important to stay, like I said, curious and to stay educating yourself on whatever front that feels right, you know? And it doesn't have to be a colonialized way. It doesn't have to be reading like some of us do. Uh, We don't all have access to that. It's also a very privileged place. Like it could be just that reconnection with the land, that reconnection with your breath, you know, um, a lot of us are very busy. And so just that mindful, I say, can you do 10 seconds of just taking a pause and connecting in that moment with yourself in a day, like come back to who you are in the fullness of who you are. Um, that's, that's really how we're going to get free is the more that we go in. Um, and, and I implore everyone to just remember that, you know, um, the you know the police force is an extension to a return to enslavement program and that uh, you know we have what we need as communities to support one another and there's not any disaster that hasn't already happened that hasn't already been dealt like not dealt with and so we are in a really fertile place as people to um 
explore what building community, which then would build safety, could look like. And so sometimes we look at the world, and I know for myself it feels overwhelming, the amount of work. But then I remember when I just do that work on the inside, that'll be that ripple impact to that community. When I talk about it with other communities like you and I are right now, that's going to be a ripple impact farther And when we do this, we start building community and that builds little spaces of safety. And we start actually embodying the kind of kind of world that we hope to leave to future generations. Um, And so just uh, keep keep at it, you know, keep at keep at your breath work. (laughs) (laughs) Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, You know, I'm active on on all the spaces, but IG spirited underscore justice, um, Twitter spirited justice. um, Those are two spaces that you can find me a lot. Um, I am on TikTok and also other places as well. Doing the dances. I'm not doing the dances right now. No, I'm not. Right. Yes. No, just the education right now. Maybe a dance in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amber. And thank you all for listening to Opening Presence.